Steve Schultz for that great theme song, and thanks to you for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. On this episode, which I'm recording from the beautiful Stein Erickson Lodge in beautiful, or should I say very beautiful, Park City, Utah, I spoke with three musicians who are onto very unique career paths, all doing things very successfully at a very high level. And that's Johnny Gill, John from the Disco Biscuits, and Johnny Three Tears from Hollywood Undead. And first up is my chat with Johnny Three Tears from Hollywood Undead. The latest album from the band is called New Empire Volume 1. And when you hear that there's a Volume 1, of course you think, is there going to be a Volume 2? The answer is yes. And Johnny opened up about that in our chat. And we also talked a little sports towards the end of the interview. Great guy. I think you're going to like this one. How are you, bro? Great. Thank you very much. And so the new album is New Empire Volume 1. How long did you spend making it? Um, total time, probably about a month of recording. We did it in two pockets. I think we did three weeks over the last winter, actually right around last Christmas, and then um, 10 days or so over the summer to, to finish the whole thing. I would say about a month. Do you remember which song from the batch you recorded or at least wrote first? Yeah. Um, so on our second volume because we have two volumes so there's a song called coming home that was the first one we wrote for the both volumes and that was uh that's not on the first one though it's on the second one it's still actually one of my favorite tracks which is funny because normally the first one we write is kind of that one where you're like but it actually ended up being one of my favorite songs um so i'm kind of happy about that because usually the first few you're like these kind of fucking suck (laughs) <laughs> so you answered my question as to whether or not there's going to be a volume two any idea on the timeline of releasing that one um i think i would guess spring or early summer i don't think we're going to put a big gap in between them or anything uh we're going to be pretty rapid fire but i don't have an actual date but that would be my guess was there ever the idea of being like guns and roses and putting both of them out the same day you know g and r can do whatever the fuck they want we can't we have to follow the the rules we are given I'm not Axel, bro. Those guys can do anything. Um, so although I would have liked that, I would probably get a hard no. So, you know, GNR could release a hundred songs at once and no one's going to say anything, but we, uh, we're a different beast. So we considered it, but I don't think that, uh, something that we could do. When you're making an album on this one, you have a couple of guest vocalists on there, like Benji Madden and Kellen Quinn. When in the process do the backing vocalists or the guest vocalists come about? Well, dude, we're actually recording. So Benji and Joel managed us, uh, the guys from Good Charlotte, and they have a big office with a studio in it. So we went in there to record. So we were recording there. Uh, so Benji, who's a good, good friend of ours, we just, you know, like, it, it's funny because it's pretty organic. Kellen is managed by them. So they were just there. We were there. We were hanging out. You know, we'd be drinking some tequila or something. 
we'd start jamming together because we're all there. And next thing you know, you're writing a song together. So it wasn't like, hey, let's get, uh, you know, Kellen or Benji for this part. They'd be perfect for this part. It was kind of like a natural kind of uh, thing that happened. So um, it was pretty cool. It's pretty special, man. I, uh, I love those guys from the bottom of my heart. So I'm glad we got to write a song together. And are there any special guests on Volume 2, or is it too soon to reveal that kind of information? Oof, I don't know. There is, but I guess I probably shouldn't say, because I'm not sure, and I don't want to get a call from someone after this. So I'll, I'll keep that private just out of caution. So the current lineup of Hollywood Undead has been together for quite a while. You know, it's a lot of original members and all that. When you guys started the band, did it start fully as a full-time kind of venture? Well, I mean, you know, when we started out, we were in quite a few bands together with certain people at different times. So this was kind of our circle. And, you know, we started Hollywood Undead as more of a music outlet. We never actually saw it because we had tried for years to, like, get somewhere in our other band. We hadn't really. Um, so we kind of said, you know, whatever, we're just going to make what we want to make. And, and not we, we kind of put it on the back burner. And that was kind of when we gained you know, more interest, which is kind of ironic, you know, cause you like struggle for years to get someone to pay attention to you. And then when you finally stop caring, uh, they do, it's like a girl. You just have to act like you don't care if you ever want to date somebody, um, just be a jerk. But it was kind of that vibe where it was like, eh, who cares what happens with this? And we finally, with that got somewhere. So ironically, that's how it all started was we just went with our passion on the project and there was no rules. I think Hollywood and Dead's very eclectic, partly because we weren't trying to do anything in particular. We were just like, if we liked something, we would just do it or use it. Didn't matter the instrument, didn't matter the progression, didn't matter the beat, nothing mattered. So we kind of threw it all together, and that's kind of how we formed. Is it also that same attitude when it comes to songwriting, that if it's a really good song, it comes together in 15, 20 minutes as opposed to weeks? I would say more often than not, yes. I mean, you know, I think just by feeling when you have something. Um, but songs can be deceiving too. So you can, you can think it's there and just keep digging and digging and digging and never get there. It's kind of like a, you know, a rabbit hole. You can go down there and you just never come back up and you don't know where it all went. But some of our best songs, yeah, we, we sat there for 20 minutes and jammed it and built it and it was there. By the end of the day, you're like, whoa, we just wrote an amazing song. But then I've also spent two months on a course trying to find that one missing thing that I've never found. I still torture myself over stuff like that, old songs that never came out. I still try and sort them out. Five years later, I'm still digging. So it's one of those things, you know, music writing is not, there's no particular way to do it. And, uh, you know, if, if, especially if you're trying to write a, a quote unquote hit, if people could write hits on purpose, everybody would write, every song would be a hit if there was a formula, but there's not. And it's kind of one of those things that, I think of the magic of music as it's not meant to be fully understood. What is life like outside of music for you? Because you're one of those bands where people see you on stage, they know the music, but they don't really know if you guys are into golf or anything like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we all have varied interests. Um, I don't play golf. I've tried. Um, I've never played sober, so I don't even know if I'm any good at it. Um, I think that's one of the unfortunate things about golf is most people like me associate it with getting drunk, um, for the other poor golfers who take it seriously. I'm that asshole on the course. That's probably annoying the shit out of you. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> golf was never my thing, but yeah, we, I mean, we always, I play football. 
I love base. Baseball is my favorite sport. I grew up right in the shadows of Dodger Stadium. I grew up in uh, Atwater, which is, you know, about a mile, two miles across the L.A. River from uh, the stadium. You could see the lights during night games from my window, actually. And um, I was an obsessive Dodger fan, still am. Um, and, uh, you know, we were, I work in uh, the world of cannabis, actually. We have a few dispensaries and some grows in different states. And I've worked in that industry for quite a while. So, you know, we do all kinds of different things. Um, but a lot of them, you know, everybody does and some of them they don't. In terms of music, what was the band that really was your gateway into music? Was it Kiss or Motley Crue? No, neither of those bands. I wasn't into the sex rock stuff, you know. Um, I've always been kind of a, more towards the dark side, I guess. The first thing I heard that was like modern, because, you know, I grew up on what my parents listened to, and I still listen to, actually, I probably listen to more of that than anything now, was probably the Deftones, was, which was what, one of those bands that made me like, dude, I want to do this. Um, I want to make music, you know, because it was so emotional and tangible for me. And like they were saying something, I, you know, there was something inside of me that responded to it, I guess, to sum it up. Um, that would be the band that really brought it out of me. And what was the last concert that you went to for fun? Oh, man. I'm going to admit, man, that's, it's been a long, long, long time since I've actually willingly gone to a concert. So I can't even remember. I'm not even kidding. Once you play like 200 shows a year, the last thing you want to do on your own time is go watch one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So in closing, any last words for the kids? Well, just... Um, I guess I, more than anything, thank you for the support. I, I feel very fortunate every day that I still get to do this and that there's people who care about our music as much as we do, and uh, we'll keep going until they want us to stop. So uh, uh, gratitude all around. Outrocast. Next up is my interview with John, the guitarist of the Disco Biscuits. John and band have been doing things their way for decades now to huge international success. An example of that is Camp Bisco, their own multi-day festival, which they've been doing, I believe, for 20 years now, or at least this should be the 20th version of Camp Bisco coming up. And plenty of years ago, I think they were the first band to do their own themed rock cruise. Either way, the band is currently in the midst of the Act One 2020 tour and have new music in the works. We also talked about why the Cisco Biscuits bought DJ Jazzy Jeff's studio and their Philadelphia roots. 2020 started off as a big year for you as usual, and 2019 ended with you guys doing a big residency and, of course, releasing the cover of Blondie's Rapture. Most bands kind of take it easy at the end of the year. Did you guys have a big break leading up to all that? Not really, no. We, we played a few shows. We didn't tour. We didn't do a full tour in 2019. So we weren't that exhausted for the New Year's run. That was our tour, basically. It was over New Year's. Right, and of course the touring picks up in April, and you have Camp Bisco and all that coming up soon. Is this the uh, 20th edition of Camp Bisco or the 21st that's coming up? Uh, I think we're two years behind the year, so I think it's 18. I'm not sure of hand, but it's a lot. It's beyond counting. From what I can tell, I think you guys are the first band to really do that sort of a destination, if not just one of the first. Did you guys ever envision doing a cruise? We did the first two cruises that were ever done, the first two or three cruises that were ever done. And uh, I didn't personally like the cruises. I'm too tall. We were on these little tiny cruise ships, and I'm just too big for the beds. 
And so it just like it, the bed was literally like not even past my ankles. It was just this tiny little bed and I'm a very tall person. It just didn't work. And, um, and I just wasn't a big fan of the cruise. So we decided to do a week in Jamaica instead at a resort. And we've been doing that for 12 or 13 years. And who are the people that oversee all that? Is it the people within your management company do the day-to-day? Or is there a third-party company that you rely on for all that? Uh, we did the shows in the islands with a company called Cloud9. And they do tons of island shows with other groups all the time. Um, you know, in addition to our management and the band and everything, that's how that stuff gets done. For somebody who's never been to Camp Bisco, how does the live show compare to just seeing one of your regular sets? Camp Bisco, the Disco Biscuit show is very similar to what we would normally do. Um, so, in other words, we travel with basically the band, all the same equipment and stuff like that. We all commit to be a bigger light show. So at Camp Bisco, there would be more lights, more lasers, more things to see uh, than the normal show. But it's not a huge amount of augmentation. It's just a little bit. And a lot of times the sound system has a few more subwoofers in it because there's a lot of bass acts that play at Camp Bisco, bass music acts. So bringing it back to one of the first things I mentioned, the cover of Blondie's Rapture, how far in advance did you know that you'd be covering Rapture? Maybe uh, a week. And did you Something know like right that. away that it was going to be a holiday gift to the fans? Uh, we came up, well, that's a remix of our version of Rapture. And so we were working with uh, some DJs called Party Pupils. And we made the remix with them. Those guys did. We gave, got the tracks all sorted out, and then they remixed it. So the version that we released to Spotify is the remix of our live version from Red Rocks. Do you have new music in terms of a studio album in the works right now? We do. We're booking studio dates. We're doing the, we're at the recording phase right now. Uh, we'll probably spend the next couple of months recording, putting new songs into the set, like the live set. And then we record them after that. We kind of do it the other way that bands usually do it. And, uh, you know, we do that because we like to play the songs a bunch before we release them. Uh, just to, you know, make sure they're their best. And we're playing a bunch of new stuff now. And we're going to make an album out of whatever records well in the studio. So we have some studio dates booked in March. And we'll book some more in April and some May, and we'll do them in between the shows. We'll do uh, studio days and get some recordings. No we'll make an album out of that. Are you personally somebody that likes recording in the studio? You know, we were never a record company band, so we never really got a lot of studio time. We got a, a week here, three days here, and a couple days here, and usually it was in a studio that was like a public storage unit with a recording computer in it or something like that. Like ironically, when we self-funded our album, our very first album, we got the most studio time in that deal because it was all studio time. And then we do these other record deals later where they were just like, you know, giving us reasons why our album wasn't going to sell in advance of even making the album. 
and then they don't, and then we were never able to afford any good studio. So we really haven't had any time in a real studio. I think, I think the band, you know, we've been a band for 20 years. We've probably spent less than 30 days in a real studio in 20 years. That's very surprising to say the least, because I know that you had written a rock opera a lot of years ago. So obviously you love the craft. Some people love the writing and not being in the studio. Are you a bigger fan of the writing than you are performing? Well, no, I love performing. Performing is the best. Um, but I'm also a big fan of writing. So I think both of those things I like to do a lot. It's, it's obviously a lot more kind of satisfying and rewarding uniquely to write because every song to me does sound like almost a different place to go. Like there are songs that I've written that sound pretty similar to each other, but the whole sound of the band goes in a lot of different directions, especially in the rock opera. You know, we did uh, in 2018 on 1231, so New Year's Eve of 2018, we played the rock opera and we streamed it live and free on YouTube. So you can go watch, you can go watch the whole rock opera right now if you wanted to. And you hear the songs go to a lot of different places compositionally, and I had a lot of fun writing that. Um, it's a different kind of fun than, you know, walking out in front of 45,000 people and playing a set like we do. So it's, they're both great. You know, it's great that we get to do both things. And it says on Wikipedia, I'm curious if this is true or not, that the band purchased the studio space of DJ Jazzy Jeff. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, we had it. We don't have it anymore. We had it for a bunch of years in Philadelphia. Now, how did that come about? Did was it just for sale, or did somebody actually know Jeff in the band? I think everyone in the band met Jeff at one point or another, but it wasn't based around that transaction. Um, that transaction was was done between us and the the people who owned the building that the studio was in. So the building was in a giant. It was in a giant building an FBI building actually. And we were like, the basement floor was filled with these studios. And so we bought the studio. We worked out of there for five years, at least maybe so much, maybe eight or nine. And then we sold it to somebody else when we were done. In terms of being from Philadelphia, when people think of Philadelphia, they usually first go to Hall and Oates, maybe the roots gamble and huff. But do you really feel Philadelphia as a home base for the band was the music scene really instrumental in the early days of the Disco Biscuits. Oh, uh, yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, ironically, the Jazzy Jeff Studio he got it from Gamble and Huff. So the studio was originally designed by Gamble and Huff, or for them, or it was originally theirs. And there's a lot of like doo wop vocalist walls and soul. Like, there's a lot of acoustic recording spaces for. Uh, singers and stuff like that, because those guys do a lot of vocal stuff. Um, do we feel connected to Philly? 1,000%. I mean, we started there, and we played, like, our first, you know, 500 gigs there, you know? We were a, a studio, of a Philadelphia local bar band for a while, just playing all the different, you know, anywhere. Even, you know, the furthest we went was Penn State, which is the middle of Pennsylvania, but... That was it. We didn't break into New York to the Wetlands Club maybe two or three years after we started being a band. It was a while before we got into that club. So you 
mentioned before that you have a new album coming up. The 18th or 19th edition of Camp Bisco is coming up. Are there any projects I missed? Because I know you're a very philanthropic band to begin with. Uh, there is, I mean, those are the big things. I mean, we're playing, um, we're playing the Electric Forest Music Festival, which I believe is sold out already. We're, we're one of the headliners of that festival. We're playing, uh, I, don't, I think we're playing High Sierra Music Festival, which is a uh, jam band music festival in California, which is a classic. It's been around forever. Where I think we headlined Friday night of that show. And... You know, that's a lot for us, all this stuff going on. We've been very low-key for the past couple of years, so this is, uh, this is a plenty of resurgence for us, a lot of stuff. And then for you personally, what is life like when you're not touring? Any surprising hobbies? Well, I have a, my, uh, my girlfriend is pregnant, so we have a baby in two weeks. And so there's that. And um, honestly, I've been building a music studio in my house and working on that most of the most of my free time so when it's not music it's music and family got it so in closing john any last words for the kids just come on out to a show check out a biscuit show near you or check out the youtube page where all of our concerts are uh are live streamed and free last and definitely not least is my interview with johnny gill You probably first learned about Johnny Gill from his work in New Edition, but he had a career before New Edition, and he's had a career for decades after New Edition. His latest album, Game Changer 2, I believe debuted at number one on the Billboard R&B charts, has a cool collaboration with Carlos Santana on there. And that led us to talking about guitars. And when I asked Johnny about his hobbies away from everything, he talked about golf. And I think you're going to be surprised to find out who his main golfing buddy is. Johnny was one of the greatest interview subjects I've ever had. You're going to pick up on that really quickly. How's it going? No uh, complaints over here in New York. What about yourself? Oh, well, shoot. No, it's not cold on that side? <laughs> Absolutely freezing, but what can you do? Uh, I, I don't want to rub it in because I'm in California. No, you know, I, I don't want to rub it in. I ain't that kind of guy. <laughs> well, that said, let's just cut to the chase here. Game Changer 2 debuted at number one on the R&B charts. Did you expect that you had a number one album on your hands when you started making it? Uh, I knew I had something special. It was. It did not take a rocket scientist to, to, to see that, that... I, you know, the thing that I do when I record, I listen, I live with an album, I go through the whole process of it. And what I did was I made a conscious effort, like I did on the first album. I didn't want to put not one wasted song on the album. Like I, and you know, everybody's attitude now because of the way the industry is and the business is, you know, you get one or two, three singles. So, you know, hey, don't allow yourself to load up with an album that you're not going to get, people are not going to get a chance to hear all of the singles, you know, because there's too many songs. I just, I'm from the old school. I just wanted to go and make sure that it was an album you put on and you just hit the play button and you don't have to touch it. So. And the album kicks off very strong. The song Only One is not what I was expecting from you for this album. It's definitely reggae inspired. When in the process of making the album did that one get written? That was midways through. Uh, I was just talking, when I was talking to some of the writers and producers, I one of the things that I wanted to do with this album was to, you know, I'm a musician as well. And I wanted to stretch out a little bit to to just do some songs 
that uh, uh, and music that inspired me and not lose the essence of who Johnny is, but yet being able to stretch and do some other things that will allow, or make, you know, hopefully that people would appreciate. And, and so that's how that song actually came about. And um, uh, it just felt good. <laughs> and somebody who's been following your career a long time still might not realize that you had a career a couple of albums before you joined New Edition. And of course, your career yeah. has gone on long after New Edition. How do you yeah, really identify yeah. yourself knowing that you've been with some super groups, you've been solo artist, you just said that you're a musician. How do you like to be thought of? Wow, that's an interesting question, but more so just an entertainer, a, 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 a well-rounded um, entertainer uh, slash musician, because that's something that I wanted to focus on and we'll want to focus on more even in the upcoming projects and stuff of what I enjoy. And that is, you know, my main instrument is guitar. And I, I tell you, even on this album, I had uh, a bit of song and, and got, I had uh, Carlos Santana, uh, collaborated with Carlos Santana and Sheila E. And I, he's always been, you know, uh, Carlos is just an icon and he's one of my idols. And I, I'll have, I have several guitars, uh, Paul Smith guitars because I thought I was going. Mine was going to sound like his. Uh, unfortunately, they don't. <laughs> but <laughs> it was so awesome, man, to to do a song that I and then I I thought I was like, man, this would be incredible if I could get Carlos Santana on it. And you know, a dear friend of mine is my brother uh, Barry Bonds, who I was letting him hear the song, and he said, you know, Carlos is directly across the street from me, and he says he's the nicest, sweetest guy you'll ever meet. And I'm like, no way. And he says, I'm going to link you up with him. And sure enough, he introduced us and we started talking. Carlos and I started texting back and forth and talking and laughing. And, you know, and I asked him about it and he was like, absolutely. So I was really blown away and so honored. When in your life did you start playing guitar? I started playing guitar when I was about five, maybe six years old. It's my main. I mean, I play all kinds of instruments, but that's my main instrument. Usually, uh, when you ask somebody what led them to playing guitar, they usually say the same five to ten kind of musicians or guitar heroes. And you just talked about Carlos Santana, but who or what was it that inspired you to pick up the guitar in the first place? Well, I had four, three other brothers, and my dad was a minister, and we used to sing, and he was a singer, uh, and uh, and you know, and had a quartet group. And my dad just one day bought us instruments, bought all of us instruments, and. Uh, I, he bought me the guitar, my brother bass, my other brother uh, uh, percussion, and my other brother drums. And what was crazy was I, I, I was really intrigued with everybody's instrument. And I remember because as kids, you know, you fight and no, don't touch my, leave myself alone, leave my toys alone. And so I, I recall playing sick a few times just so I could stay at home to play their instruments since they wouldn't let me play them. Nobody could understand to figure out why I could play everybody's stuff, but. <laughs> I was really intrigued. I did, I had no idea as a kid that that's what it was. I would have never been able to define that. That I was that I was just intrigued, and and uh, and, and I, I I started playing guitar and I taught myself, so it wasn't like I took lessons or any of that stuff. Did any of the other siblings in your family follow you into the musical trade? My uh, my brother uh, Randy, he had a group called Through the Extreme, and they did quite well. Uh, they were with MCA for, for a while, Gasoline Alley. Um, but my other brothers, they never really had a full interest in it. We all sang and had a family group that we sang around, you know, 
the, the, the metropolitan area for many, many years. But um, just myself was really uh, aimed at that. And I didn't set out to become uh, a professional singer. I just would sing and sung and, and, you know, in church and around the, you know, the, the, you know, the DMV area. But, um, that came about through Stacey Ladisol, that opportunity, um, hearing my voice, hearing me sing one time, cause I was in a glee club with her and as well. And then we used to hang out all around her, her neighborhood. So it just all kind of happened by fate. <laughs> And you've also found a lot of success as an actor. You've appeared in dozens of movies and television shows. How do you like acting versus singing? Do you prefer one to the other more? I, I am really starting to get the acting bug now. But, you know, singing is always going to be my first love. Acting, what I enjoy doing is when the camera's on, you can go and do what you do. The thing that I, there's a drawback for me with acting is the whole setup, the hurry up and wait and sitting around for each scene where it's like, it can be really long drawn. And I know with singing, you get, you go right straight to the point, get to the point, you can do your thing. And it's just, it's a whole different vibe and feeling, but I enjoy both of them. I really do. And of course, your new album, Game Changer 2, is less than six months old. And you find that some artists have already started recording their next album before the current one is even out. Where are you at? Are you working on the other projects? Because as I said earlier, you're known to also be in a bunch of supergroups from time to time. Well, no. This album is like I did. The, the Game Changer 1 album went for four years. Uh, I set my goals to have this one to go no, no, uh, nothing short of four years. Uh, uh, once again, I followed the same blueprint that I did on the first album, and that is no wasted songs on this album so that I could take my time. The great thing about being my own uh, owner uh, of uh, of my of this is that I get the chance to work this album for as long as I want and close it out when I want. And I think that it's so important to take your time and make sure that the album can be uh, get out there because people have 150,000 ways if they can listen to music these days. Uh, so I'm, I, and I'm not rushing anything. I just want it, want the, I call my fans the jury. And once you get that music to them, I want them to decide. So, and it takes a while getting it dialed in because there's so many different ways and outlets, uh, even, you know, you know, the people listen to music these days. So uh, I'm just looking forward to just running this album because like I said, there's not one wasted song on the album. <laughs> And given that you've been a successful entertainer more of your life than not, because as we said, 16 years old, your first solo album came out on a kind of a big label. What are you yeah, still yeah. trying to accomplish career-wise, or do you not really think in terms of goals? I, I guess I do to some degree. The thing that, bothers, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm always conscious of and want, you know, I'm no different than any other artist. When you're doing what we do and work hard and you trying to put out great music you do want your um you want your want to be acknowledged amongst your peers that's important because we work hard and want to be respected and other than that it's like let the chips fall where they may more more importantly for me i just love and enjoy what i do and that's why i've been doing it for 37 years and is there a lot of life for you outside of music and entertaining people um, this is all I know. This is all I've done all my life. And this is all I know. And what I still have a passion about. I, I ask that because when you talk to 
famous entertainers. Sometimes they go, yeah, I do music, but I'm really a car collector. Yeah, I do music, but I really have this chain of restaurants and bars that I'm developing, and that's where I want to be. And other people go, no, all I do is music. That's what I do for fun. That's what I do for work, and that's that. I was curious if you're closer to one of those two kind of generalizations there. Yeah, well, I'm a golfer, and, uh, uh, you know, always looking forward to uh, to getting out there and playing with my friends golfing. That's been one of my, uh, one of my, my, you know, main sport and for many, many years. And, uh, and I love, that's the other thing that I do. So that's where I find my, 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 my piece. <laughs> and are there a lot of musical collaborators that you had over the years that are golfers? I, you know, I could tell you, for example, somebody like Alice Cooper or members of Judas Priest, they're golfers, but I don't know if they're in the same golfing circle as you being in California. Oh yeah, and Darius Rucker too. The list goes on. Sam Jackson is one of my, you know, one of my golfing buddies that we go, uh, we we go at it. You know, he just had back surgery, so he's just recovering from that. But we play every morning, early in the morning. We get up and we go. But I mean, the list goes on of so many of my friends that are in the in the business that uh, we 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 gather around and get going and play and talk trash, laugh, and have a great time. Wow. Okay, that was just a lot of interesting information. I'm going to follow your social media and hope to see more on golfing in the future. But all that said, Johnny, in closing, any last words for the kids? I make music for everyone, and I want the world to get it, to hear uh, the message and the music that I record um, because it's, it has a meaning behind it. It has something behind it. And I hope and pray that, you know, someday the industry will kind of heal itself to get back to the basics. And that is to play great music that all generations can get a chance, a fair chance at listening to, you know, instead of continuing to, uh, to really separate music, uh, um, and, and not allow, uh, segregate us and not allow the world to hear just great songs, great music, great messages, uh, and that come, can come from anywhere, but, um, you know, and to be inspired. And I hope that the messages that I have in my music will inspire not only just the younger generation, but just everybody. Well said. Well, hope there's a game changer three in the near future and hope to see you live in New York in the near future. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Outrocast. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz as produced by puregrainaudio.com. Theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mixed by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.